the makers of Philips Milk and Magnesia Tablets present Amanda of Honeymoon Hill, radio's drama of love and life in wartime in the Romantic South. The story of a beautiful valley girl, Amanda Dyke, who married the son of the aristocratic family up on the hill, Edward Layton. Today, at the end of our show, a special appeal will be made to every woman in America who is eligible to join the waves. Hundreds of thousands of waves are needed urgently, at once. Full details will be given at the end of the broadcast. And now for our drama, Amanda of Honeymoon Hill. Amanda is troubled, deeply troubled. She is thinking... Ever since Edward and I had to leave our lovely home in Virginia, come here to Washington to live, we've been plunged into such a different world. Of course, we had to come when Edward was given such an important war job, assisting Mr. Foster in his huge airplane factory. Of course, I wanted to come with him when he said he needed me here, but... Well, now we've had to move into Mr. Foster's home, Edward and I. Oh, it's a beautiful place here in Chevy Chase. We have our own little suite of rooms. Mr. and Mrs. Foster are both so good to us, but... I don't want to seem ungrateful, truly, but... Oh, I do so wish Edward and I could be alone. That we didn't have to live with them. And with Bettina. <laughs> If Amanda knew the full truth, she'd wish far more urgently that she didn't have to live in the same house with Bettina Foster. For Bettina, the glamorous, unscrupulous daughter of Edward Layton's employer, is greatly attracted to Edward. Under a pretense of friendliness to Amanda, Bettina is bent on making trouble for her. And last night, Bettina did her best to stir up trouble between her young cousin, Jeanette Lawrence, and Jeanette's soldier husband, who was away at camp. Now it's after dinner... And Edward and Amanda are talking in the sitting room of their suite in the foster home. Oh, that was Jeanette who just telephoned me, Edward. She asked me if I could meet her tonight or if she could come here to see me for a little while. So of course, I told her to come here. I'm so glad you did, darling. In 10 or 15 minutes, I'll have to leave you and join Mr. Foster in the library. Oh. We have a lot of work to go over, but I do hate walking out on you when you've no other plans for tonight. Oh, darling, I have a million and one things I ought to be doing. Stockings to wash and buttons to sew on your shirts and things like that. You don't have to worry ever, dear, about leaving me alone. Your work is the important thing. I know, but just the same I do worry, Amanda, darling. I'm so afraid that you'll get thinking of home and Robert Elijah and missing him too much. I do miss him, Edward. I wouldn't be a mother if I didn't miss my baby terribly. But tonight, well, leaving him in our home so I could be with you, that's my war job, Edward. And we do have each other. Look at poor Jeanette. She's all alone. Yes, poor kid. It's tough on her and on all the young wives who have to carry on alone while their husbands are in the service. But she's a brave girl yes, and... Yes, she has been brave, Edward, all along. So brave. But now, and Bettina... Oh, Dom, I've been so upset all day remembering the things that Bettina said last night. Hmm? What things? To Jeanette, of course. She... Be... Oh, Edward, I forgot I haven't told you about that. I haven't truly had a chance. I... Well, you know Bettina and I had dinner last night at Jeanette's apartment. 
Yes, and you did tell me what a charming little apartment it is. And how much Jeanette loves it because it's her first real home. She almost had me crying, Edward, when she told me how she and Jack chose all the furnishings together before I went into the army and how she's working so hard to keep the home for him till he comes back. She loves him so much. And she needs so terribly to believe in his love for her. Well, from all I've heard, he does love her with all his heart. And from what Jeanette said, I'm sure they're a particularly devoted couple. I think so, too, Edward. Well, for two whole weeks now, Jeanette hasn't had a letter from him. Not a single line. Though she writes him every day, and she's nearly frantic, of course. Oh, I see. Yes, of course that's tough on her, but she's foolish to be so anxious. If her husband had been sent overseas, Jeanette would have received a notification of an APO address. Oh, well, that's not what's worrying her so terribly, Edward. She's not afraid Jack's been sent out of the country. Well, then what? It's the thing that Bettina keeps telling her. Bettina says that, well, that with a man, new places mean new faces. That out of sight's out of mind. Oh, rot. Surely, Amanda, Jeanette doesn't believe that. I want to believe Jack could forget her or deliberately neglect her, but she... Well, Edward, you know how Jeanette's always lived in Bettina's shadow and is influenced by Bettina's opinions. And every time that Bettina sees Jeanette, she keeps telling her... I can imagine. I can well imagine the poisonous doubts that Bettina would express. I suppose she has Jack spending his evenings with some other girl, having himself a heck of a good time and forgetting his wife entirely. That's it exactly, Edward. It's just the very things Bettina keeps saying. And she ought to have her mouth washed out with soap. That's despicable. It's worse than that. It's almost a form of treason. Army officers have emphasized over and over how important it is to a soldier's morale for him to have complete faith in his wife and to know that she has complete faith in him. And for an outsider to destroy that faith, well, it's like destroying one of our soldiers. It's aiding the enemy. Edward, I wish Bettina could hear you saying that. Or that I'd been able to put it to her that way, so clearly and sternly. I did tell her she was wrong, all wrong, talking to Jeanette like that, but I wasn't able to stop her. And couldn't Jeanette stop her? No, she was too upset, all overwrought, crying. Oh, Edward, I'm so sorry for her, because I know how she feels. It, it isn't, it really isn't that Jeanette lacks faith in Jack. It, it's herself, she doubts. Herself? Well, just what do you mean, Amanda? Well, it's sort of hard to express, but you know how it's been with Jeanette. Growing up a poor relation in this house, always having to be grateful for hand-me-down clothes. And she never was as pretty as Bettina, nor as clever, and she never really expected much happiness for herself. But she did find happiness with Jack. Yes, but it was never a happiness she could take for granted. Because to Jeanette, it, it seemed like a miracle that Jack should love her and choose her to marry him. Edward, you know, darling, it's so easy to doubt a miracle. Especially with Bettina constantly telling her Jack's probably stepping out with some other girl. Well, if Jeanette believes that, then she deserves to be unhappy. Oh, Edward, darling, you don't truly understand. I, I don't suppose any man could understand just how Jeanette feels. But that's the way women are made. And Bettina's so clever. The way she can twist things. Why, last night she was advising Jeanette to write Jack a scorching letter. And will you that... tell me, please, just where Bettina gets off advising other women how to handle their husbands when she hasn't managed to get one of her own? Hasn't anyone ever told Bettina that she hasn't done so well for herself? No, I don't suppose anyone's ever dared to tell Bettina that. But, darling, if anyone tried, she has her answer already. Her answer? Yes. She'd say that, well, that she had loads and loads of chances to marry. That men have been trying to marry her since she was 18, but that she always gets tired of a man by the time he proposes. So she refuses him. Hmm. I think you have something there. Yes, that's just about what Bettina would say. You made a pretty shrewd guess, Amanda. Oh, it's more than a guess. 
Well, only the other day, Bettina was telling me that the really popular girl, the one who's sure of her beauty and charm for men, he never marries very young. He said that the girl who's never had a sweetheart before and is afraid she'll never get another grabs at the very first man she can get and then marries him before he quite knows what's happening to him. Well, I'll be darned. That beats anything I've ever heard. So marrying young is a proof of unattractiveness in a woman. And being unmarried at 29, Bettina must be all of that, is proof of her devastating charm. Oh, yes, that's the general idea. <laughs> it means that Bettina's so sure she can get a husband any time she wants that she doesn't have to hurry. Poor Jeanette and I, why, we just had to take what we could get while the going was good. <laughs> take it and like it, I hope. You do still like being married to me, Mrs. Layton? Well, I managed to stand it, Mr. Layton. Uh-huh. <laughs> it would... Darling, you're picking up your briefcase. Oh, and that means... Yes, you... I'm afraid it does. It means that I'm going to take time to kiss you just once, and then I'm going to tie me downstairs for that conference in the library with Mr. Foster. And it'll give you a good chance to talk to Jeanette and try to knock some sense into her head. She ought to be here soon. I'll do my best, darling. I only wish that you could talk to her yourself. I will sometime, when I get a good chance. Goodbye, darling. Bye. Don't wait up for me. I may be very late. I must remember what Edward said. Every word of it. So that I can tell Jeanette. Army officers have told us over and over how important it is to a soldier's morale for him to have complete faith in his wife and to know that she has complete faith in him. There she is now. Come on in. Oh, Jeanette, darling, I'm so glad. Oh, Bettina, it's you. Yes, it's Bettina. Were you expecting Jeanette? I didn't know. Well, she just telephoned a little while ago that she was coming over. To see you? Well, then maybe you'd rather that... I only came up because I thought you'd be alone. Now, don't be foolish, Bettina. She'll want to see you, of course. Sit down, please. Make yourself comfortable. Well, it seems very queer that Jeanette didn't telephone me. After all, she's my cousin. That must be Jeanette now. Jeanette. Jeanette, dear, I was beginning to be afraid that you were lost. Why, Jeanette. Jeanette, whatever's wrong. That's what I came to tell you, Amanda. I... Oh, hello, Bettina. Jeanette Lawrence, if you don't look like something the cat dragged in. You're as white as paper. Your eyes are like two burnt holes in a blanket. What have you been doing, crying yourself sick over Jack? No, Bettina. I'm through with crying. Through with being a trusting little fool. I've taken your advice. Last night after you left, I wrote Jack that letter, and the things I said barely scorched the page. Oh, Jeanette, you didn't. Jeanette, you mustn't mail. It's already mailed. I went right out to a post office the minute I'd finished and sent it air mail. Good. I only hope you told him plenty. Yes, I told him. I told him I wouldn't stand for it being treated this way, being neglected and tricked by him. Jeanette. Oh, <laughs> dear, my poor dear. For heaven's sakes, let's not have a scene. Just when Jeanette's beginning to show some gumption. My dear, you were perfectly right to send that letter. I'm proud oh, of leave you. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. You made me write that letter, Bettina. And I hope you're satisfied. Because I... I'd give my right hand if only I'd never written it. If only I could take it back. But not all the wishing in the world can bring back a letter that's been written and mailed. These poisoned darts of words that Jeanette put on paper are winging their way to pierce the heart of her soldier husband. What will Jack Lawrence do when he receives that letter? And now that she has done her worst with Jeanette, what new trouble is Bettina to make for Amanda?
Today, we make an urgent appeal to the women of America to join the wave. As you know, our American Navy has now become the biggest in the world. In a growth so quick, so rapid, it is non-paralleled in history. This rapid growth of the Navy has made it necessary now, today, for the Navy to call upon the women of America for one of the most important jobs women have been asked to do in this war, to enlist by the thousands as waves. You're needed to put on the glorious blue uniform of the Navy, to step in and free a sailor from a shore job so that he can take his place on one of the hundreds of new Navy ships and planes which must now go forward to fight in the fiercest battles of the war. As a wave, you may help direct the takeoff and landing of Navy planes as a control tower operator, send and receive important code messages, help locate men and ships at sea, make up weather charts, and so forth. The only qualifications to become a wave are you must be an American citizen 20 to 35 years old with at least two years of high school or business school training and no children under 18. The age limit for officers is 20 to 49 years. For full details, go to your nearest Navy recruiting station today. Do this at once, today. Our American Navy needs you as a wave in order to use its mighty strength most effectively in the days just ahead. Amanda of Honeymoon Hill is presented each day at this time by the makers of Philips Milk of Magnesia Tablets. Don't miss our broadcast tomorrow. And please stay tuned for Second Husband, which follows immediately. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Now, Second Husband. Starring Helen Menken as Brenda Cummings. Second Husband is presented by the makers of Dr. Lyon's Tooth Powder. Brenda has just delivered an ultimatum to her 16-year-old daughter, Fran, and to Elsa King that Fran is to leave Elsa's house and come home by the next day, even though Fran wants to stay, declaring that she doesn't like her own home anymore, preferring Elsa's, where she considers herself understood. Elsa's understanding of Fran consists of two things, trying to put the girl on the stage against Brenda's wishes and turning her against her mother. Brenda is desperate to know how to combat Elsa's influence. And as soon as she reaches her apartment, she goes to her old friend Ben for advice. Brenda, honey, what's the matter? Did you find Fran oh, real sick? Oh, she's sick, Ben. Where you mean? Why, what's wrong with her? Oh, what's wrong with her is Elsa King. Huh? Ben, I'm frightened out of my wits. I really what? am. That woman has taken my daughter and made her into someone else. Why, you wouldn't know her if you heard her talk. Now, wait a minute. I don't get this. What are you trying to tell me? That Elsa King, bit by bit, word by word, has made Fran believe horrible things about me. But... That I don't love her. That I'm jealous of any possible career that she might have. And above all, that I don't understand her. Come now, honey. Fran knows better than such tomfool stuff. Well, she's got a mind of her own. She ain't going to let a woman that she's known a week tell her what to think about you that she's known for 16 years. Yes, but it's happened, Ben. I... 
I haven't exaggerated a word. Well, you don't think you have, but it's all in your head. Why, oh. can't a word of it be true? But Fran said those very words to me, Ben. I don't believe it. Not Fran, not to you. No, I couldn't believe it myself. It kept going through my head as I stood there listening to her that, well, this isn't my daughter, Fran. None of this is happening. But it was Fran. And it did happen, Ben. What am I going to do? Well, did you come off and leave Fran with that woman? She wouldn't come along with me. At first, they pretended it was because Fran was too sick to be moved. But she wasn't that sick, Ben. She just didn't want to come. And finally, she said so to me. Well, I don't care what she said. She hadn't ought to be left around that... that... Well, I ain't in the habit of calling ladies' names, but I'd sure like to call that one some right now. Oh, Ben, I didn't want to leave Fran there, but I couldn't pick her up bodily and carry her off. And she wouldn't obey me. Do you hear that, Ben? Fran, who's always been the most obedient child in the world, defied me completely. Well, I can pick her up bodily and carry her off, and what's more, I'll do it. Well, I told them that you'd come for Fran tomorrow, Ben. Tonight, this minute. I ain't going to have her there. And as soon as I get her here, I'm going to give her a good licking. She ain't too big for one. She's proved that. But I'm afraid none of that is going to solve the problem, Ben. Mm. It's a bigger thing than you know, perhaps bigger than I know. But I do know this much. Huh? It's not going to be easy to lead Fran back to being her old self again. Well... What in time nation made that Elsie want to change her? Wasn't Fran all right the way she was? Well, we know how it all began, Ben. Uh. Elsa King's determination to put Fran into that first show that she was producing. Uh. But it's even gone further than that now. I think that, well, Elsa King is, is neurotic in the extreme. And in some twisted way, she really thinks of Fran as her own daughter. Really believes that she has the right to control her and plan for her. And that's what makes all this truly dangerous, Ben. So, how do you handle a thing like that? I don't know where to begin. I just don't know. Ben, well, I ain't so sure that you're right. Now, if you ask me, Elsie King is, is nothing more nor less than a spoiled woman that wants her own way. Now, she wanted Fran in her play, and you balked her. She's fit to be tied that, that anyone would dare to stand up to her. So she's doing everything low and sneaking that she can to get back at you. Now, all that other stuff about her thinking that Fran's her daughter... Just don't make good sense. Well, good sense or not, Ben, it's true. I know it is. And I've got to combat it some way, somehow, for Fran's sake. Elsa's got to be made to stop undermining my daughter's faith in me. But how to do it, Ben? How? Oh, honey, you got me out of my depth. Folks don't act that way where I come from. All I got to say is that I wish Elsie King was a man, because it'd pleasure me considerable to knock someone down that's acting the way she is. Well... If Grant were only here, he'd know what to do. Uh, oh, but he's not here. He's fighting a war on the other side of the world, and I'm fighting one of my own right here. How likely Grant would know what to do. Oh, Ben. Huh? What I... about Mildred? But now, don't go talking about Mildred. I'm mad enough as it is. If I got to thinking about that sister of yours, I'd like as not blow up. She started this here whole thing in the beginning. Yes, that's just it, Ben. She did start it. Uh. And she apparently has some influence with Elsa King or... She could never have got her interested in my daughter, Fran. Hmm. Maybe, maybe we could get her to use that influence for the good, Ben. Any time Mildred Turner uses her influence for the good, I'll know the world's coming to an end. But she might, Ben. She just might. It's hmm. worth the trying. Anything is worth trying. Well, you can try, but I'll tell you before you start, you might as well save your breath. Well, you're probably right. Hmm. Even though I think Fran is too inexperienced, Mildred thinks Fran should go on the stage. And she's already against me. But still in all, Ben, she doesn't know these other things about Elsa, what she's doing to Fran. So maybe, maybe if I told her right now... Well, maybe that... not. 
You know Mildred ain't never agreed with anyone in her family yet. And there ain't no reason to believe that she's going to change now. Yes, but she loves Fran. She wouldn't want to hurt Fran. I or heard my that... name. What are you two saying about me behind my back? I hope it's nice. Well, I'll tell you what we were saying. We were saying that... Hush, hush, Mildred. Mildred. I need your help desperately. I need you desperately. Why, Brenda, darling, of course. What can I do? Whatever's wrong. Well, you see... You see, it's Fran. Now, Brenda, for heaven's sake, if that's what you want my help about, you've come to the wrong person. You know very well that I think Fran should start her career now. And I'm not so wishy-washy that I can alter my firm convictions just to please you. No, no. It's not the stage this time, Mildred. It's something else. Something that you haven't heard about. You see, Fran wants to stay at Elsa King's. She doesn't want to come home. She wants Does to... Elsa want her? Well, that's what I'm trying to tell you, Mildred. Elsa is keeping her there. She's keeping... But how marvelous! Isn't Fran the lucky girl? That beautiful house, all those servants. How I envy her. Mildred, Mildred, you don't understand. Elsa has turned Fran against me, against her own home. Oh, how utterly silly, Brenda. But it's true. It's true, and I've got to get her away from there. Don't you see, Mildred? I certainly don't see. What I see is that you've got the most ridiculous and macabre imagination, and that you're overwrought. You need a vacation. I've always said you work too hard. And that's one perfectly good reason why you should let Fran go on the stage and make some money for you. Listen to her. Listen to her. The same old thing. Same old Mildred. You keep out of this, Ben Porter. I've nothing to say to you. Well, I'm glad of that. But I've got plenty to say to you. Now, you look here, Mildred. You started this thing with Elsie King, and now you can just unstart it. I started it? Yes. Started what? No, it's no use, Ben. You see, Mildred won't help us. Well, it ain't no disappointment to me. I never expected her to. But I don't understand what I'm expected to do. Mildred, Mildred, would it do any good for me to tell you? Not a lick. Tell me. At least I'd like to get this straight. You never had anything straight in your life. Brenda, if you don't stop Ben talking to me this way, I won't listen to a word. Please, Ben, please. Oh, excuse me, Mildred. I wouldn't get you ruffled up for the world. No, I take it all back. I never meant a word of it. I think you're the smartest, best, helpfulest lady in the world. Now, does that suit you? Your sarcasm leaves me unmoved. Well, ain't that a pity? No, 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 Ben. All of this doesn't help. Mm. Be quiet, please, so I can tell Mildred what I wanted to do. All right, honey, all right. Not a peep out of me. All right, then. Mildred, Mildred, if you'd go to Elsa King and tell her that she's hurting Fran, really hurting her, by mixing up her mind and, and taking away all her beliefs, then maybe, maybe she'd stop. I told her, but she wouldn't listen to me. Elsa King doesn't like me. She likes you. Will you do that for me, Mildred? But, Brenda, it's all so fantastic. Fantastic so... or not, it's what's happening, I know. I've seen Fran, and I tell you that she's changed already, and she'll change all the more. So, will you go to Elsa and try and show her what she's doing? My dear Brenda, I wouldn't dare have the effrontery to tell Elsa what to do. How could I interfere? How, How could... could you interfere? But, well, I'm a piebald pony. To think I live to see the day that Mildred Turner says she can't interfere with no one. Hers wouldn't bad an eye to interfere with a king on his throne if she had the mind to. I don't know how you got the gall to stand there and speak those words. Any more than I can see how you got the nerve to refuse your own sister when you started the trouble to begin with. Ain't you the least bit ashamed is what I want to know, ain't you? Brenda, if you can keep Ben quiet for one peaceful minute, I have something I'd like to say to you. Never mind about me. I'm getting out of here. I can't stand it here no more. There you are now, Mildred. He's gone. Tell me what you have to say. In spite of the fact that I think all this excitement is perfectly ridiculous, I'll speak to Elsa. Oh, will you? 
When you notice, I'm sure it'll do some good. And I do, I do thank you. Will you go and see her right now? Oh, I suppose so. If I must, I must. You know, Mildred, Ben's really wrong about you. Because sisters do stick together. And I knew that you'd help me in a crisis. Is Ben so wrong? Will Mildred really help? Or will she, as is her habit, bungle things all the more? We'll find out tomorrow in Second Husband. And now, Miss Helen Mencken. Today, we should like to end our broadcast by the reading of this special Invasion Day prayer by the Right Reverend Henry St. George Tucker. Almighty and most merciful God, Father of all mankind, lover of every life, here we beseech thee the cry of thy children in this dark hour of conflict and danger. Thou hast been the refuge and strength in all generations of those who put their trust in thee. May it please thee this day to draw to thyself the hearts of those who struggle and endure to the uttermost. Have mercy on them and suffer not their faith in thee to fail guide and protect them by thy light and strength that they may be kept from evil. May thy comfort be sufficient for all who suffer pain or who wait in the agony of uncertainty. O righteous and most powerful God, who in their tragedies and conflicts judges the hearts of men and purposes of nations, Enter into this struggle with thy transforming power, that out of its anguish there may come a victory of righteousness. May there arise a new order which shall endure, because in it thy will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us and cleanse us as well as those who strive against us, that we may be fit instruments of thy purposes. Unto thy most gracious keeping, we commend our loved ones and ourselves, ascribing unto thee all praise and glory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. husband, starring Helen Menken as Brenda Cummings, will be on the air at the same time tomorrow. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
At this time, CBS World News will attempt to bring you a scheduled address to the people of France by General Charles de Gaulle, leader of the French Committee of National Liberation. General de Gaulle will speak from London, and if we are able to pick up his talk, you will hear a running translation of his address by Beverly Thurman of Columbia's shortwave news staff. This is CBS in New York, and in a few moments we will switch you to London for the scheduled address of General Charles de Gaulle. But in the meantime, while we're waiting for the general to begin, we might mention that it was announced only this morning that he had arrived in Britain. As you know, his trip to England has been planned for some time, and he is scheduled to discuss at length with Prime Minister Churchill and other leaders the problems of his committee. High on the list of subjects to be discussed, it is commonly believed, is the question of whether General de Gaulle's Committee of Liberation is to be granted full or provisional recognition as the present government of France. At the present time, the Committee of Liberation does not enjoy the recognition already granted to exiled governments of other occupied nations, which now have their headquarters in London. The news bulletin this morning announcing de Gaulle's arrival in London also mentioned that he has already had a first meeting with Mr. Churchill shortly after the first news came of the invasion of his country by Allied troops. De Gaulle had apparently arrived some time before, but news of his presence in London had been held back for reasons of military security. We are still waiting for General de Gaulle to begin speaking in London. In the meanwhile, we'll bring you invasion news up to this moment. President Roosevelt summoned top Army and Navy chiefs to the White House today in Washington for an invasion conference, and he is preparing to lead the nation in a prayer which he wrote last night as the Allied Armada moved across the English Channel to France. Mr. Roosevelt called in General George C. Marshall, Army Chief of Staff, Admiral Ernest J. King, Commander-in-Chief of the United States Fleet, and General Henry Arnold, Commander of the Army Air Forces. Meanwhile, reports are pouring into the White House from the War and Navy Departments on the progress of the invasion. When the invasion came early today, President Roosevelt was sound asleep, and the White House was quiet except for a message center through which came official reports of last-minute developments. The president retired early in the evening after his radio broadcast, but undoubtedly was up early canvassing the latest official dispatches. After the landing in France was announced, members of the White House staff remained in close touch with their offices, and the workday was expected to begin an hour or two earlier. Otherwise, the White House was quiet, with very few lights on, and no activity except in the press room where a group of reporters sat through much of the night waiting for any possible development from the president. The contrast with that other climactic occasion, December 7th, 1941, was marked. News of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor was disseminated from the White House with, as one reporter recalled, a flash a minute. This time, the White House seemed to be sleeping through the first phases of the action. Here's a late bulletin from London which says that more than 1,000 American heavy bombers attacked enemy targets in France this morning in support of the invasion. Military observers in London said today that a general Russian offensive coordinated with the Anglo-American attack from the West may be launched within the next 48 hours and almost certainly will begin before the weekend. News of the Allied landing in France spread swiftly throughout Russia today and touched off enthusiastic demonstrations such as rarely have been seen since the war began. American war correspondents in Moscow were the first to break the news and they were quickly surrounded by cheering crowds who rushed to shake their hands and to offer congratulations. Radio Moscow's chief announcer, who customarily reads only Premier Stalin's orders of the day, broadcasted General Dwight D. Eisenhower's special communique announcing the landing. He read the bulletin in a solemn and triumphant tone, 
rivaling his best performance for the Red Army's biggest victory announcement. Soviet war marches, Yankee Doodle, and the triumphal music reserved for Stalin's victory orders followed the bulletin. For two weeks now, the Russian people have been expecting the invasion to begin at any moment. And the question on everyone's lips was, has it started? The Soviet people now are waiting for their own armies to strike from the east in the coordinated offensive mapped out at the Tehran Conference. The Germans' Transocean News Agency said today that a battle was in progress in the English Channel north of La Havre between German naval units and Allied forces attempting to make a landing. Nazi broadcasters said the Allies had won footholds on several islands off the coast of France. Earlier, they reported landings in the Channel Islands west of the Norman Peninsula. That's the Normandy Peninsula. The Transocean Agency reported that a naval battle was going on in the Channel north of La Havre between German units and Allied forces trying to make a landing. DNB, the official Nazi agency, said German counterthrusts were being undertaken east of Cherbourg, but the enemy keeps throwing the bulk of his troops into the area between Cherbourg and Oostraham. The 28th and 101st American Parachute Divisions dropped in the Normandy area, DNB reported, adding the usual propaganda claim that many of these soldiers were captured. Ladies and gentlemen, this is CBS World News in New York. We had expected to bring you an address by General Charles de Gaulle speaking in London, but so far we've been unable to contact that point. Meanwhile, we're bringing you news of the invasion to bring you up to date on what has occurred in this biggest of all days, the invasion of Western Europe. An American war correspondent, Stanley Richardson, who has just returned from the Second Front beachhead with the first naval eyewitness of the operations. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we're informed that we can hear from General de Gaulle in London. So we switch you now to London for the address by General de Gaulle. En bon ordre. Pour nos armées de terre, de mer, de l'air, il n'y a point là de problème. Jamais elles ne furent plus ardentes, plus habiles, plus disciplinées. L'Afrique, l'Italie, l'océan et le ciel ont vu leur force et leur gloire renaissantes. La terre natale les verra demain. Pour la nation... General de Gaulle says that never have France's forces of the air, sea, and land had such a glorious opportunity to distinguish themselves. And he speaks of the glories which the French armies have just uh, achieved in the Italian campaign. Soit exactement suivi. La seconde est que l'action menée par nous sur les arrières de l'ennemi soit conjuguée aussi étroitement que possible avec celle que mènent de France les armées alliées. General de Gaulle says that the first order which he has to, which the French government has to give to the French forces uh, will be followed exactly. L'action des forces de la résistance doit durer pour aller sans plissant jusqu'au moment de la déroute allemande. La troisième condition est que tous ceux qui sont capables d'agir 
soit par les armes, soit par les destructions, soit par le renseignement. General de Gaulle says that the action which the French armies will carry out with the, the Allies against the enemy will be exactly conjugated with those of the Allies. Ou à la déportation, quelles que soient les difficultés, tout vaut mieux. And with these actions, that of French resistance will also be combined. La bataille de France a commencé. Il n'y a plus, dans la nation, dans l'Empire, dans les armées, qu'une seule et même volonté, qu'une seule et même espérance. General de Gaulle says it is absolutely necessary that all French patriots capable to act by arms and by refusing to work for the Germans should not allow themselves to be taken prisoner. And General de Gaulle said in concluding that the Battle of France has begun. And there is no longer, except a single and and uh, sole will to conquer on the part of the French nation. You have just heard a speech by General Charles de Gaulle, and its translation, a running translation of that speech by Beverly Thurman of Columbia's shortwave news staff. General de Gaulle spoke to you from London. And now, here in CBS World News Headquarters in New York, is Columbia's distinguished commentator, Mr. Quincy Howe. The news of Allied landings on the north coast of France has given the war its most dramatic and sudden change since the Germans invaded Russia. Up to less than 12 hours ago, the Russians, and the Russians alone, had engaged and defeated millions of German troops in vast land battles. Our North African and Italian campaigns had diverted some German strength from Russia, so had our preparations for invasion from the West. The fall of Mussolini in July and the fall of Rome day before yesterday hit German prestige hard throughout Europe. But until Anglo-American troops began to land in force in the West, it was toward the Russians that the Germans looked with fear and the people of the occupied countries with hope. Our landings have started to change all that, and the better and faster our campaign in the West develops, the more rapidly British and American prestige will grow in Western Europe. These landings differ from the invasion of Italy in at least two important respects. First, they show that Britain and the United States have developed first-rate military power on land as well as in the sea and on the air. We are now able to come to grips with the Germans in their own element, land fighting, and have already mastered our two elements, the air and the sea. That was Columbia's analyst, Quincy Howe. Ladies and gentlemen, the following is the invasion prayer which President Roosevelt wrote while Allied troops were landing on the coast of France and which he will read to the nation by radio at 10 p.m. Eastern Wartime tonight. My fellow Americans, in this poignant hour, I ask you to join me in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and true. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness to their faith. They will need thy blessing. Their road will be long and hard. The enemy is strong. He may hurl back our forces. 
Success may not come with rushing speed, but we shall return again and again, and we know that by thy grace and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph. They will be sore tired by night and by day, without rest till the victory is won. The darkness will be rent by noise and flame. Men's souls will be shaken with the violences of war. These are men lately drawn from the ways of peace. They fight not for the lust of conquest. They fight to end conquest. They fight to liberate. They fight to let justice arise and tolerance and goodwill among all thy people. They yearn but for the end of battle, for their return to the haven of home. Some will never return. Embrace these, Father, and receive them, thy heroic servants, into thy kingdom. And for us at home, fathers, mothers, children, wives, sisters and brothers of brave men overseas, whose thoughts and prayers are ever with them, help us, almighty God, to rededicate ourselves in renewed faith in thee in this hour of great sacrifice. Many people have urged that I call the nation into a single day of special prayer. But because the road is long and the desire is great, I ask that our people devote themselves in continuance of prayer. As we rise to each new day, and again when each day is spent, let words of prayer be on our lips, invoking thy help to our efforts. Give us strength, too, strength in our daily tasks to redouble the contributions we make in the physical and material support of our armed forces. And let our hearts be stout to wait out the long travel, to bear sorrows that may come, to impart our courage unto our sons wheresoever they may be. And, O Lord, give us faith. Give us faith in thee, faith in our sons, faith in each other, faith in our united crusade. Let not the keenness of our spirit ever be dull. Let not the impacts of temporary events, of temporal matters, of but fleeting moment, let not these deter us in our unconquerable purpose. With thy blessing, we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. Help us to conquer the apostles of greed and racial arrogances. Lead us to the saving of our country and with our sister nations into a world unity that will spell a sure peace, a peace invulnerable to the schemings of unworthy men, and a peace that will let all men live in freedom, reaping the just rewards of their honest toil. Thy will be done, almighty God. Amen. <laughs> long-awaited D-Day is here, and in Littleton, as in thousands of other towns, hamlets, and cities throughout our country, the churches are open for prayer. Aunt Jenny herself has just returned and has been talking out by the front gate with Martha Reynolds, one of whose boys has been in England with the invasion forces. And here's Aunt Jenny now. Folks, you heard what Danny just said, and I guess there's not one of us but has someone near and dear in the service of our country, a husband son, a sweetheart. Or maybe the boy down the street who was just a kid only a few years ago. That's right. And whoever they are, wherever they are, our hearts are with them today. And our thoughts go out especially to the men and boys who are invading Europe to bring liberty to the starving, conquered people. And now the time's come that these oppressed nations have been looking forward to for so long. And ladies, it's up to us home folks to help our men and boys by keeping our faith in them strong and unwavering as they fight to stamp out the forces of evil and oppression. So now, friends, 
Let's join in a brief prayer for the safety and success of our loved ones. Dear Heavenly Father, be with our boys today. They're fighting that liberty and right may prevail. Give them the strength that is beyond human strength. Sustain and comfort them and grant that the light of victory may begin to shine in the not-too-distant future and that our boys will come home to us again. Friends, for the sake of our dear ones in the service, let's all firmly resolve anew this day that we'll not relax our efforts, that we'll continue to do everything in our power to help win the war, to back up our brave fighting men and women. God bless them, every one. And now for your story, Aunt Jenny. Well, friends, you remember Claire Rogers was just like a daughter to old Anthony Abbott before he died? His only son, Jim, had run away from home years ago after an auto accident. And then Jim came back to Littleton, not knowing his father was dead. That's right, Danny. Martha Reynolds told him she was at the traveler's aid desk that morning. She told him, too, that he'd inherited some money. But as she didn't know the name of his father's lawyer, she told him to go down to the newspaper office and talk to Calvin. Well, early that afternoon... Jim went to the clarion office to get a copy of the newspaper carrying the notice of his father's death. And then Calvin was saying... I was just going home for a bite of lunch, Mr. Abbott. Uh, glad to share it with you. Well, that's uh, very kind of you, Mr. Wheeler, but I haven't time today. Oh, that's too bad. Here's the paper, Mr. Wheeler. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Pete. The article about Mr. Abbott is on the front page, along with the pictures, boss. Oh, good. good. Why does Pete say that? I mean, how did he know that I wanted to see the article about Mr. Abbott? Oh, people around the newspaper office have a way of putting one and two together. <laughs> we don't always get the right answer. Sometimes we learn too late to our sorrow, and but... Uh... You and Pete recognize me, too. Yes, yes. I'd like to help you in any way I can, Mr. Abbott. Well, thank you. But I'm not at all sure I'll stay here, and I had in mind slipping away with as little commotion as possible. Uh, no explanation is necessary. If you don't find what you want in the paper, just let me know. I... I couldn't leave without going to my father's attorney. It was his name that I wanted to get from the paper without asking anyone for it directly. Oh, I understand. Well, I'll tell you, he's Will Hunter. His office is two blocks down the street on the right-hand side in the yellow brick building in the center of the block. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, and goodbye, sir. Goodbye, and good luck, Jim. You said it, boss. Good luck. That guy sure looks like he could stand a little luck. Yes, yes, he does, Pete. Can you feature a drip like that? Being the son of good old Anthony Abbott, inheriting all that dough, I'm looking like such a sourpuss about it. Or was it an act, a cover-up, for fear it'd show how gosh your fire tickly was the nice old guy had kicked off? I don't believe I saw Jim Abbott just like you did, Pete. His eyes were as gentle as a woman's. No, 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 not, that's not it. Uh, they were... Yeah, I know, boss. They looked like if he was a girl, he'd have been blubbering fit to drown us. And if it was an act, he could sure deliver the goods, costume and all. Boy, that suit's so thin that if he had sneezed real hard, it'd have been gone with the wind. Hunter, I'm Jim Abbott. Well, uh, well, how do you do? This is indeed a surprise. Do sit down, Mr. Abbott. Thank you. I probably should have notified you that I was coming, but I... Didn't know that I was myself until about an hour ago. You've been in town only an hour, Mr. Abbott, or may I call you Jim? If you like. But about coming in town, I, 
I came in on an early train this morning, but... Oh, I see. You mean that you only learned within the hour of your father's uh, demise and the legacy he left you? No, I, I learned of that soon after I arrived. Oh, I see. It took me some time to decide whether or not I wanted to make any inquiry about the money I was told my father had left me. May I ask why you would have to uh, decide on such a matter, Mr. Abbott? Well, I think it's only fair to tell you that I still haven't made up my mind as to, to what I'll do in regard to it, but I would like very much to find out what my father's last wishes were and ask if he perhaps left any personal message for me. Yes, Mr. Abbott, there's a letter, but I do not have it in my possession. But where is it? Who has it? A girl by the name of Claire Rogers has it. She came in after her work every day and cared for your father, and he loved her like a daughter. Well, this girl was a nurse? No, it seems your father befriended her when she came here some six or seven years ago, and Claire never forgot it. Oh, I see. Now, as to the terms of the will, you are to receive a certain sum each month for the first year. The sum isn't large, but it'll be sufficient for your personal needs. Well, I wasn't thinking of my current needs, Mr. Hunter. I'm able to manage. What I want is my father's letter to me. Of course. I'll call Claire after her work and tell her you're coming for it. But first, I want to make the other terms of the will clear to you. Very well, sir. Briefly, they are this. After the year is up, you are to be given full possession of your father's entire legacy. Well, I, I don't know that I'd feel right in taking it after the way I've... In this matter, you do not have only yourself to consider, Jim. As the will, including your monthly allotment, is null and void, unless you agree within two weeks' time to a certain stipulation your father has made. Stipulation? But well, that doesn't sound like my father. But since he made it, he must have felt he had some good reason for it. And I couldn't blame him if he'd lost all faith in me. His faith in you, Jim, never wavered. And the stipulation is that you marry Claire Rogers. Marry? Marry? Yes. Marry the girl who cared for your father so long. Oh, but, but see here... The kind of a girl I'd want to marry wouldn't be the kind of a girl who, who, who'd have me. I believe you'll regret having said that when you meet Claire Rogers. I regret having said it now. I regret ever having to, to think such a thing about any girl or about myself. But, but look at me. Shabby, lame. I'd be a pretty poor bet for any girl, even with the money, if I had to be thrown in along with it. What you're really trying to say, Jim, is that any girl who would marry you would be marrying just for the money. Isn't that it? Well, wouldn't she? Wouldn't she? What other reason could a girl who... who Oh, never mind. Please tell Claire Rogers that I'll not impose on her. And that if she'll send me my letter, we'll call it quits. Or does she know about the stipulation? Yes, she knows. And wait a minute, Jim. You better think this over a little. Claire cared for your father without thought of return for herself. Well, that sounds very pretty, but if you'd knocked around the world as much as I have, you'd know that those things just don't happen without a motive behind them. Again, I say, you'll regret those words when you meet Claire. Mr. Hunter... You may think you can tell by, by looking at me what my life has been. Only, you can't. I mean, there are certain things that I still have ideals about. Jim, it was your father's last wish expressed to me that I would promise him not to let you bolt without meeting and talking with Claire. Now, you wouldn't refuse your father's last wish just to talk with her, would you, Jim? No. No, I guess I, I couldn't do that. Good. I'll take you to. No, 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 thank you. If I must see her, I, I want to do it alone. I've been here two hours, and we've talked about everything except what I came to talk to you about. I'd like it much better if you'd call me Claire. You see, I've known you for such a long, long time, Jim, through your father that... Well, please call me Claire. And let's not talk about anything that disturbs you this afternoon. I'm sure there are still other things that you want me to tell you about your father. 
you've been very thoughtful to tell me all the things you have. Oh, I'll remember lots more as time goes along. Do you mind if I ask you something? No. You went to the cemetery this morning, as soon as you found out about your father, didn't you? Well, how did you know? Because there were fresh flowers there. And I went on my weekly visit this afternoon after work. You mean that you... You take flowers out to him every week? He loves flowers, Jim. Somehow I believe you do too, don't you? Why, I... I mean, I saw you looking at the sweet peas there on the desk. They're out of the garden. My landlady lets us rumors plant things in. Look, all this this talk... Don't do it. I'm pretty well washed up, and I, I don't take this sympathy very well. Oh, Jim. What a word to use between us. Us? Well, that sounds as though you had already accepted the, uh, the stipulation my father made for us to, to marry. Well, I have. Without ever having seen me? Why? Well, Jim, maybe I can answer that better by saying that now that I have seen you, you're just as I thought you'd be from what your father told me of you. Just as fine, just as sensitive, and just as lost. All right. If that's the way you want it, and the money means enough to you to take it, even if you have to have me thrown in with it, I guess you've earned it. Oh, Jim. I'll call you tomorrow and make arrangements for the wedding. to marry Jim because of his inheritance, Aunt Jenny? Well, Danny, when a girl's had to work hard for years, money can make a big difference. But don't you go jump to conclusions. You listen next time. Because right now, I want to appeal to all you wives and mothers. In times of anxiety, you are the one the whole family looks to for hope and strength. That's right. So even though it may be difficult... I'm appealing to you to be as strong and cheerful and matter-of-fact as possible. True names are never used in Spry's real-life stories, brought to you by S.P.R.Y. Fry, the improved all-vegetable shortening. Dan Seymour speaking. Duckings last twice as long with Lux Care. Get extra wear from every pair with Lux Care. This is CBS, 
the Columbia Broadcasting System. <laughs>